All right, good to see you this afternoon. I think it was mentioned in Sunday school, but I'll mention it again, um, that Greg Dorfmeyer called yesterday. Greg and Mitzi were members here for years. Um, and Mitzi is, is um, she's been taken, uh, put on hospice. Uh, Greg said that she could be here another couple days or could be two or three weeks. It is not sure, of course. I reminded him that our life is in God's hands, and he gives life and he takes it away. Uh, Greg seemed to be both exhausted uh, physically and, and in a bit emotionally at the thought of losing his spouse. But uh, as you think about them, and do, do pray for our, our brother and sister. We know that for Mitzi to die is gain, and we're thankful for that testimony and and, but I just would mention that again to you, so you'll be uh, praying for them uh, throughout this week. And if anything happens, we'll let you know by way of the emails or however we communicate these days uh, with regard to that situation. All right. Well, let's, uh, I trust you have. Does everybody have the printed sheet? Did you pick one up on your way in? Anybody need one? All right. Psalm 142. This is not the whole psalm. It is the, the, the latter part of the psalm. We'll sing it to come, let us sing unto the Lord. Uh, so let us stand together and let us sing. Ask God's blessing. Brother Ken, would you lead us in that prayer, please?
please go ahead and turn to that psalm. We just sang 142. A very plaintive cry. Plaintive meaning very sorrowful, uh, melancholy, uh, mournful, if you will, as this psalm begins. And as we've noted before, when what you need to look for in, in the scriptures are repeated words and repeated phrases if you want to know where to often, often want to know where to key in uh, the meaning or the thrust of the psalm. And here we have three uh, words that we could point out. The first one is cry, verses 1, verse 5, and verse 6. And that signifies the intensity uh, of feeling that, that is uh, being per, uh, put across here. So the word cry, and we also have the word voice. Interesting that uh, in verse 1, it's the word voice is repeated twice, and Yahweh is repeated twice. And if I've got this right, uh, the, the, the correct word order in the original uh, Hebrew, or not the original, but <laughs> one of the manuscripts, is voice, Yahweh, cry, and then voice, Yahweh, supplicate. As you can tell, the Hebrew is very economical uh, with its words. <laughs> we have to add words in for it to make uh, sense for us. But uh, And we might think, well, they weren't very sophisticated, but it, don't forget, it may be the other way around. Maybe we aren't subtle enough to see a word and, and come up with uh, the, the full thought uh, that is there. So that's another interesting uh, repeated uh, word, voice. Interesting, uh, I often do not pray out loud or cry. And perhaps there's not an intense uh, persecution in my life uh, like there is with David here. And of course, Whenever we see persecution, we, uh, my mind always goes to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I believe this is a, very much a prayer that he, he would have prayed <clears throat> in many situations. But I love the uh, end of it here. Uh, well, before we go there, the, the, other is, uh, the other phrase repeated is no one in verse 4. This is the cry of loneliness. In verse 4, no man, no one, no man if you have the old King James, but the, the new and the re, all the other versions uh, translate it, no one who regards me favorably. No one cares uh, for my soul. And so this is, for him, this is the cry. It's in the cave, by the way. The, the scripture tells us that. David is in uh, the cave, or a cave, I forget. Um, so this is the mournful Plaintive cry from a cave, out loud, uh, with his voice, praying that God would bring him out. It's like a prison, uh, this, this loneliness that he's feeling. But notice, as we sung, uh, the happy part of this psalm, see how he ends with a happy thought. He doesn't 
uh, feel sorry for himself and just uh, wallow in his sorrow, but he looks up and remembers the promise or promises of God. He says, the righteous shall surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. You will look after me. You will deal generously. You will confer uh, benefits. Uh, You will be good. Uh, He he is confident in that. And looking at this as messianic, what a glorious uh, to have such a Savior who looked so forward to us surrounding him. That was his plea there. The righteous shall surround me. We'll be glad uh, of that day, won't we? So I have the bad habit of not choosing a version until I get up here. Uh, since I was talking to Wade and he reads the New King James, we'll, we'll, we'll take that as a sign that that's the one I'm to read today. <laughs> The heading is a masculine of David. Uh, the New King James calls it a contemplation. Um, the other versions say uh, masculine probably means, uh, well, <laughs> this is the problem with different versions. The uh, NAS says it pro- possibly means contemplative or didactic. And then the ESV says probably a musical or liturgical term. So how are we to know? There are some things that we just can't know. A contemplation of David, a prayer when he was in the cave. <clears throat> I cry out to Yahweh with my voice. With my voice to Yahweh, I make my supplication. I pour out my complaint before him. I declare before him my trouble. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then you knew my path. In the way which I walk, they have secretly set a snare for me. Look on my right hand and see, for there is no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. I cried out to you, O Yahweh. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise your name. The righteous shall surround me, for you shall deal bountifully with me. I'll take the Trinity hymn book and turn to hymn 335, Trinity 335.
Good, you can be seated. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 this afternoon. I just want to set some things before you from this passage of Scripture. I thought about making it somewhat of a brief series, but I'm not sure that's what we'll do. We'll look at some things this afternoon. I must confess, I am in that state where I'm just not sure what I'm preaching week by week in the afternoon when I am preaching, and I'm planning on having some others come in in the afternoon here soon, so I'm not sure a series is a good thing to begin, but I was trying to contemplate what to set before you this afternoon, and earlier in the week I was with a group of guys, and and the pastor who was leading the group had us turn to this passage, and to be honest, if you asked me what he had to say, I'm not sure I could tell you, because I started reading the passage, and then started thinking about some things, and, and uh, trying to figure out some type of outline, and so forth, and and so and then when I got home, I continued to look at it, and that's sort of how this all came about this past week. But let me read in your hearing uh, the first ten verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The Apostle Paul writes, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, this house, in this house, we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in the tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that the mortal, that, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be present at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one of us may be recompensed for the deeds done in the body, according to what we, he has done, rather good or bad. And we'll stop our reading there. I want you to think for a moment, what is your passion in life? What is it that motivates you every day to get up and to do those things that you're responsible to do throughout the day? What's the driving force of your life? For some, the driving force of their life is just not to fail. They don't want to be found as a failure in anything they do, and so what drives them is the thought of failing in something. For others, 
It may be man's accolades, man's praise. What drives me is to hear men compliment me and, and praise me for the things that I might do or say. For others, it might be just recognition. What drives me is I want to be known. I want prestige. I, I want to be esteemed by others. There are some who are driven by money and others who are driven by material possessions. And yet there are some who have no drive at all. They just get up and sort of mosey and try to get through a day. It's always interesting to look at someone and, and wonder what is it that drives them? Why do they do the things they do and live the way they live? There are some people that are so passionate about certain things. It may, it may be athletics. Someone who's passionate about basketball, and they live their life for basketball, and perhaps they, they make it to the big time. They, they, they play in the NBA, and, and they've given their life to that sort of thing. But sooner or later, that comes to an end, and then they no longer know how to operate. They don't know how to live life. So what is it that is your passion? What's the driving force of your life? Well, here in the passage of Scripture that we read this afternoon, under the inspiration of God, Paul tells us what ought to be our passion. Paul tells us what ought to be the driving motivation for every believer. And if you didn't catch it, it's there in verse 9. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at whether home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. Paul, what's your drive? I want to live my life, whether I'm away or whether I'm home, I want to live my life to please Him. And this isn't the only time that Paul has expressed such an ambition. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and verse 1, we read these words. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instructions on how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel more and more. Writing to the church at Thessalonica, he says, we're, we're instructing you we're seeking to teach you how to walk and please God. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 2, I'm sorry, verse 10, Colossians 1.10. Again, the Apostle Paul writing to the church there at Colossae says, So that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all aspects. Our desire is to see you pleasing God in every part of your life, whether you're at work or at home or in a social event, that, that you are living to please God. And when we think of this, we think of Christ Himself. Christ who is our example. Christ whose footsteps we are to follow. We read these words there in John chapter 8 and verse 29. And He who sent me is with me, he has not left me alone, and Christ says this, For I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. 
I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. If we're to follow Christ's example, that should be a driving and motivating force in our life. As you look at this past week and the things you were engaged in and the activities you were a part of, can you look back and say, by God's grace, I sought to be pleasing to Him? Or did you give any thought? Again, do we become practical atheists? Did you give any thought about God in the midst of that? I mean, such things as walking through the aisle of a grocery store. I mean, how simple. It doesn't get more basic than that, does it? But how often do we think, even as I walk through the aisle of this store, I want to do that which is pleasing to God. Oh, can you do the opposite? Yeah, you can do the opposite. I mean, maybe I'm the only one, but you know, when I'm, I, I don't go to the grocery store to shop. I go to the grocery shop to, store to get and get out. All right. So when I'm going down an aisle, I, I have a mission. I, I need to pick up that brown sugar. It's in this aisle, and it's toward the end. And I'm going down the aisle, and sure enough, there's somebody who's just stopped in the middle, contemplating on what cereal to get out of the multiple choices of cereal. And everything within me is like, hey, move, do something, but, can, you know, I don't think that's pleasing to God, and yet that can be my temperament at times. So, so even doing the basic things. I mean, Paul says, How, what's more basic than eating and drinking? We do that naturally. I, I, I wasn't downstairs, but I have a feeling at lunch today, you know, nobody pulled out instructions. See, how do we do this? Oh, you pick up a fork, and then you, and you put it in your mouth. It, it's basic. You just do it. But even some of the most basic, normal things, Paul says, do it to the glory of God. My ambition, Paul says is to please God in all things and in every place. Now, setting that verse in context, there, there's much that can be said, and that's why I thought, well, do I make this a series, or do I just set some things before you? In weeks to come, you'll find out. But at least this afternoon, I, I just want to say something about the foundation upon which this admonition or this exhortation falls. The foundation upon which it is built. And, and I want you to notice just a couple things with me. And, 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 and perhaps as, you, as I come to my first point, you'll say, oh, isn't that exciting? Because my first point has to do with death and the reality of death. So point number one, I want you to consider with me the fixed reality the, the fixed reality that, that Paul speaks of here. And, and that fixed reality is both death and a building not made by hands. So first of all, there's the reality of death. We don't like to think about death. And, and when you're younger, you don't think about death. Right? At, at J.C.'s age, I, I didn't think a whole lot about death. I knew there was such a thing, but it wasn't going to happen to me. Look how young I am. Well, now, you know, I'm collecting that medic. I mean, I'm on Medicare and, and doing that sort of thing. And, and you begin to think about it a little bit more. And, and, and what I found 
also to be true when you get to be older is more of your friends are walking through death's door. And we don't know when that's going to happen. Like I said, yesterday afternoon I get a phone call and Greg tells me that it looks like Mitzi just has a few more days. Now, those of us who've been around, we remember Mitzi. She had life and, and she was spry, but her days are coming to an end. I, I, and yesterday I got a text message from the Tennises. And, and, and they're not here because a, fr- a f- friend or relative died suddenly this past week. A young man. His, his wife, they have one child, and I think his wife's expecting, and I, if I recall correctly, she's expecting twins. And he died. They weren't planning that. But, but walking through death's door is something that each one of us will do. Notice what Paul says there in verse 1. For we know, there's a certainty about that. We know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we know that death is a reality. We know that each one of us, if Christ tarries, has an appointed day of death. And in here Paul compares his physical body to a tent. And and Paul's focus is now turned to the reality that he knows death is coming. Or we might put it this way, as strange as it might sound, death is a fact of life. It's a fact of life. And it's appointed unto all of us once to die. Paul is is now calling his readers to face that reality and not fear that day, but to prepare for that day. To be ready for that day. Richard Baxter writes that he believes it's the responsibility of ministers to prepare people for death, not just to teach them how to live, but to prepare them for death. In fact, I looked it up, and there's an article by Mr. Baxter dealing with directions for a peaceful death. And he's got like 12 points of directions for a peaceful death. He wanted his people to be prepared to die. It's a reality. There are many things in this life which are uncertain. We've talked about this before. What's going to happen to our economy? What's going to happen over in the Middle East? In the Ukraine, what's going to happen next? We, we don't know. Who knows? Will gas prices fall back down to $2 some odd cents here soon? I doubt, but who knows? But there's one thing for certain. There's one thing for certain. This life is coming to an end. 
And Paul wants us to recognize that. You, you will not live here forever. And we don't know when that intrusion or that interruption will come to any one of us. We don't. Remember, remember the story in Luke chapter 12? Luke chapter 12, we have the parable of that productive rich man who, who has this crop and, and he's got such, such ideas, such plans. And he's going to tear down his barns. He's going to build bigger barns. And he's going to have all this, this grain and, and things are going to go well. And, and you just imagine in this parable that our Lord's telling, you imagine this guy saying, oh man, this is what I've been living for. The day has finally come where, where I'm not going to have any financial hardships. i got things laid up. I can enjoy life. Bring on the kids. Bring on the grandkids. Get the RV. We maybe do some travel. Oh, things are going to be grand. And you know the story. On an appointed night, God said to him, You fool. This very night, your soul is required of you. And you can almost imagine the guy thinking or saying, No, not yet! Let me, let me live a little longer here. I'm just getting to the point where, where things are, are looking up. Let me enjoy this for a while. But he gave no thought of the fact that his life was going to come to an end and God was going to require his soul of him that very night. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 tells us there is a time to die. And Paul's saying to us, we need to recognize that reality. Paul did himself. He did so himself. You might recall there in Second Timothy. Turn over there. It's a familiar passage. Second Timothy. Chapter four. Paul knows his life is coming to an end. And he thinks about the reality of his coming death. And when he thinks about the reality of his coming death, it, it, it's amazing because he observes it with a sense of calmness. He says there in verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The drink offering was that the last part of that sacrificial ritual and they poured the drink offering out and usually when that was happening you knew that that, that, that that sacrifice and that ritual was coming to an end and Paul says, I'm ready to be poured out. I'm ready for my days here on earth to be over. And he goes on to say, and the time of my departure has come. Paul looked upon death in a positive way. He uses this term, the time of my departure, which is a term that speaks of pulling up stakes. If you're going to live in a tent, I know of very few people who think of living in a tent permanently. All right? I mean, I like to camp. I just don't want to live there permanently. 
And, and it's the idea of, of, of pulling up a stake in order that you might move on. And Paul says, that's where I, I'm ready. The time of my departure has come. It's time to loosen the ropes on the tent and move on to another place. Paul observed the reality of death very calmly. And here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he writes of death in figurative language. And of all things, he uses the idea of a tent. Now, why is that interesting? Because Paul's a tent maker. Paul was very familiar with tents. And he knew how long they would last. He knew what they were made of and, and what their purpose was. And he says, that's what we're living in. Our bodies are these tents. He understood that the tents would by and by face decay and rot and so forth. I don't know if they still do. Now those tents are... I, I don't have one, but... I, I, the tent I have is one that has like... 300 poles, and you got to connect them all just right, and, and it's uh, canvas and everything else. It's been sitting in my garage for years. I have a feeling if I took it out, it's probably all rotted, you know. And we've talked about it. Let's, let's just see if we can get that thing up. It would take hours. It, it's just one of those. It was huge, and it had all these poles. But, but and, and Paul says, That's, that tin ain't going to last. I'm amazed it's lasted this long, but we haven't had it out, but it isn't going to last. He knows that it will be destroyed or it will be decayed, and that's what we go through. That's, that's life. We will pass through death's doors. And so before we move on, just to speak about the building not made of hands, I, I just would pause and ask you, you know, are you ready to go through those doors? Now, I, I understand I truly do, that there's always a fear of the unknown. We've never walked through those doors before. It's never happened. And so there can be some hesitancy to pass through those. What, what, what's it really going to be like? What, what's really going to happen? But I forget who it was, and it may be here in my notes someplace, but maybe it was Spurgeon. I think it's Spurgeon who, who compares it to having a glass of tea. And he says, it's like having a glass of tea and putting three or four heaping teaspoons of sugar in that tea and then forgetting to steer it, you know, swish it around. So it all settles in the bottom. And Spurgeon said, and you start to drink it and you're a little, it doesn't taste all that good. But when you get to the bottom of that glass, it's sweeter than you could ever imagine. And he compares that with passing through death's door. There may be some hesitancy. What will it be like? But when you pass through, it will be sweeter than you could ever imagine. Are we prepared for that day. And then he goes on not only to speak of the fixed reality of death, but for the believer. And again, he's writing to Christians here. He speaks about the fixed reality of a building from God. 
going back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For we know that our earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, and we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Again, there's this confidence that Paul speaks of. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. This is not a man-made house. Again, a man-made house is often imperfect, subject to decay, and subject to destruction. By the way, they, they won't stand forever. Now, they can stand a long time, but they don't, if they're neglected, they'll fall. Sooner or later, they will fall. I think, I've told you this, when, when I was growing up, my stepfather... He, he loved to do a lot of different things. And, and, he, and, and one of the things he did was he would design houses. And he didn't do that for a living. He just, I remember we had one of those big planning boards, and, and he would sit there with his compass and all of his little instruments, and he would design a house. And a couple of those houses we built in, in my lifetime. Um, it, it was never my greatest delight when you're, in grade school or when you're a teenager, the thought of getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning and going out and working on a house that you've been building for the last six or seven, almost a year of time in your life. Well, I, I wish now that I'm older, I wish I would have paid more attention and been more diligent in learning how to build that house because I just went out and did what I had to do so I get out of there. Both those houses that we built are both still standing, at least the last time I was down there they were. The, the last house we built has changed drastically. I, they've, they've put a pool in the backyard and, and other things. That they, they've, they've really done a lot of work on it. But, but, I, but I, can, I, know, I, I realize these things aren't going to be there forever. They're not permanent. All right? and, and if you've ever moved into a house, you know, the, the house we live in now was brand new when we moved into it. That's 26 five, six years ago, however long it's been. Well, guess what? It's starting to decay, you know? I've got to fix things. I, and, you know, the cement's cracking and everything else. It, 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 it's just not going to last. But the building and what we have in the future is permanent. It is eternal. It is eternal. Death will happen... But when it comes, we have a building that is eternal, that will never wear out, that is permanent. And, and, and Paul goes on to speak about we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Now, I'm not ready to open that up in detail. He, he could have several one of several things in mind. He, he could just be speaking of the fact of, of I, I want to pass through death's door and be in the presence of... I long for that day. I groan for that day. There, there could be the idea that he's thinking about the, even further on down, the resurrected body. When we die, we become disembodied spirits. And, and, and we read there in Revelation when the martyrs were, 
under the altar. They cry out, how long, how long, O Lord? They, they, they long for that day when, when body and soul will be joined together once again perfectly without decay. And perhaps he has that in mind of, of groaning, waiting for that day. And maybe sometime in the future we'll open these things up in, in greater detail. But, but the one thing we know is that as we live in this world, here, here's the thing. We, as we live in this world, one day we will pass through death's door. But when, as believers, we pass through death's door. There's a permanent building waiting for us. And Christ says that where I am, there you may be also. And that's what we're living for. And when we stop and consider that, that ought to put within us this ambition to live to please Him in all things. So I just want to set those two things before you. The reality of death and also the reality of a building from God that will yet be ours. So in light of that, then I, I simply want us to consider together what lasting influence that ought to have upon our lives. And here I just want to say three things. When we understand this reality, there's three things that ought to influence us. Number one, it ought to give us an accurate perspective it gave Paul an accurate perspective. Now look at chapter 4 and verse 16. 4 and verse 16. Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outward man is decaying, yet our inward man is being renewed by, day by day. For the momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. For while we look not at the things which are seen, but at things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Paul says, I have a perspective. You know, oh yeah, this life has its hardships. And this life can be difficult. But he calls it a light affliction. I mean, you read the passage of all that Paul went through. You know, whipped, left for dead, stoned, everything. Light affliction. Compared to the glory that is yet to come. And therefore, I don't, I don't simply look on things that can be seen. I see things that can't be seen. Because the things that are seen are only temporal. But the things that can't be seen are eternal. Do, do we live with that perspective? With that perspective. There's always the perspective of going home. Going home. The hymn writer wrote, The king there in his beauty without a veil is seen. It were a well-spent journey, though seven deaths lay between. He's expressing, it's not been easy. Seven deaths. But what awaits me is the king with unveiled beauty standing before me. 
And so, I, I remember years ago hearing Pastor Hughes. If you know Pastor Hughes, he's been with us years ago. He's back over in Scotland now. But uh, Pastor Hughes was a, a true English gentleman. And I remember him saying one time, I don't understand these people that like camping. All right? I, I just don't understand any of that British brogue. I, I just don't understand camping. What is camping? You go out, and you're in this tent, and, and I don't get it. The only thing he says that I, the best part about camping is when I can pack up and go home. That's the best part. And that's true for us. We're in this tent. It's temporal. But we're going to go home. And that's the best part. And there are some things we won't fully understand until we get home. Until we get home. So it gave him an accurate perspective. It also ought to give us a blessed longing. A blessed longing. In Philippians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul speaks of that tension that he feels very keenly. I, I, I want to stay here and minister unto you, but I want to go home, which is much it's bad grammar. I've told you this before. Bad grammar, but it's what, good Greek. It's much more better. That's what I long for. And, and I don't know if I'm going to live or if I'm going to die. To stay in ministers, fine. But, oh, to go home. That's my longing is to see my Savior. There was a longing to see Christ. How often do we pray, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus? How often do you pray that? And, and, and sincerely mean it, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I, I, we, we, we are far too earthly-minded, aren't we? You know? I, I, told, I spoke about my brother this morning. When they went to put him on a vent... His thought was, I may die, and I won't see my grandchildren anymore. Now, I understand that thought. I'm, I'm not condemning him for that. I love my grandchildren, and the thought of not seeing them isn't an easy thought. But I don't think anybody's going to pass through death's door and turn around and say, but my grandchildren, I know you're Jesus, but my grandchildren. We have a longing to see Christ and be with Him. And thirdly, it ought to give us sincere peace. Sincere peace. Just a calm observation when it comes to death. We do not need to fear. Death has lost its victory. The grave has lost its sting. And we can be at peace. If we can say, it is well, it is well with my soul, 
We can be at peace. Everything's taken care of. And to walk through death's door is only going to be to be in the presence of my Savior. Do you have that peace? Let me, let me just close by asking you that question. Do you have that peace? I mean, we don't talk about death enough, and, but it's a reality. And in light of that reality, we ought to be ambitious to please our Lord. Are we at peace with God? Can, can you say, it is well with my soul? Do you know that to be the case? I pray we do. And I pray we are people that by God's grace will be seeking passionately to please Him in all that we do because there's more coming than just this life. We'll stand before Him. And He says, we'll give an account. I won't get into that now, but every one of us will one day give an account to God individually. You're going to stand before, you're going to give an account. I said I'm not going to get into it. Now watch, I'll get into it. Not for your sin. Your sin is paid for on the cross. But when he says you'll get a, give an account on the things that are done, whether good or, I think it's translated bad in the New American Standard, that, wor- that word means useless, worthless. You'll give an account for what you did. And I don't know all how that is worked out. But it will be noticed, the things that you did that, that were just... There are some things that are, that are just useless. They're worthless. They're not wrong. Alright? I, I mean, in the midst of thinking about this, I, 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 you know, I love basketball, so this is my, my weekend. Right? And I'm sitting there watching a game as I'm thinking about this sermon. I'm thinking, yeah, this is useless. Right? <laughs> it doesn't mean anything in eternity. But I'll give an account. Am I, am I doing that which is pleasing to Him? I think that there is, there is a thought that as Christians will never stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And, and this verse seems to indicate, oh, yeah, you will. Not for your sin, but for your service. May we be ambitious to please Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for giving us this time together. Thank You for Your Word. And we pray that it would be a means to help us to be men and women who seek to please You in all that we do that it will be that lamp to our feet and light to our path. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. In closing, let's take the hymns of grace. Turn to 393. 393, which is, I trust our prayer. If we're going to be ambitious about pleasing God, then everything we have, we're going to use for Him. Take my life and let it be consecrated. Lord to thee. 393. Let's stand together as we sing.